What's going on, guys? Welcome to another week of What's the Word podcast. I got my boy Colton Lee, and not in the studio with me. He is far away from the studio. He is in North Carolina. What city do you live in, North Carolina, again, Colton? I live in Cary, which is right outside of Raleigh. Oh man, yeah. right outside of Raleigh. So, are you like a UNC fan, a Duke fan? Like, what's your what's your squad? It's funny you ask that. My my brother actually graduated from Duke. But both my parents graduated from UNC, so I was like raised a Tar Heel. So I'll always cheer for UNC. Um, yeah. So yeah, those are uh, go Tar Heels all the way. There you go, go Tar Heels, baby. Well, guys, we're not talking Tar Heels today. We're talking translations, as evidence in the title. <laughs> we're talking Bible translations, specifically. Why are there so many translations? And then also, which one you should use? I mean, you see, you can just walk in any Christian bookstore, look online, you can see there's tons of translations, and it might cause you to wonder why are all these things necessary? And if so, which one should I actually read? And so Colton, I want to ask you personally, which translation, when you're doing like your quiet time, your personal Bible study, which one do you read the most, would you say? Yeah, I would say that the one that I read the most would probably be the ESV. Um, my study Bible, I have two study Bibles. I have one that's in ESV and one that's in NASB. And those are the two that I rotate from the most in terms of doing my devotion. and. I tend to do the ESV just because I um, I feel like it's understandable, but it also is close enough to uh, the original text that it's a good it's a good translation to study from. If that makes if that makes sense, it's a good translation yeah. to, I to you, on that. you know and do inductive study from. Yeah. So ESV is what English Standard. Some people call it the extra spiritual version. <laughs> yeah, it's the English Standard English Standard version. So do you consider yourself a guy who's kind of like snobby on the translations or are you like more fluid? Like, will you use whatever or are you like, nah, like I'm an ESV guy. I'm an English standard version guy. Yeah, I, there certainly are people who are like that, who will have like sort of their set of translations that they think are the best ones. Um, And I think that some are better than others, but I don't think that I would consider myself to be a translation snob um, because as I have studied what actually goes into the process of translation. And as I've sat in classes with professors who have been on translation boards for major translations and stuff like that, um, I've come to appreciate the overall process that goes into each translation because um, each one has a different goal. And just because the goal of one translation might be a little bit different than what you're looking for personally in a devotion, in a a translation that you would use, um, doesn't mean that it's any worse or any less accurate per se, if that makes any sense. So how did you stumble upon the ESV? Like, you know, because as we're answering this question here, we're going to look at, you know, why there's so many translations, which one you should use. Did you ever go through a period where you're using different things and then stumbled upon like, oh, I'm going to use ESV now? Or was it like, did someone tell you to use it? How'd that come about? Yeah, that's that's also a good question. I actually was a little bit nervous to use the ESV at first because I knew that some of the big proponents of it were a little bit different theologically than me at at that time, although I've, I've become a little bit more similar to them now. Um, but I started off, I grew up reading the NIV, um, which I feel like a lot of us, a lot of us probably did. It was kind of like the popular one in like the early 2000s. Um, and then I started reading ESV. I found it to be a little bit more on the formal side, which we'll talk on later, I assume. Um, and I kind of just stuck to it. It's been it's been good for my devotions, good for my study. Kind of can do can can serve every aspect of of my uh, the, the purposes that I need it for, whether it be sermon prepping or doing it in, in yeah. a devotional word. Yeah. And it, so, for you guys listening to so 
translations, a lot of people look at translations and they're like, oh my gosh, like if there's so many translations, doesn't that maybe signify that like there's an issue here? Like why are we translating it so many times over and over and mm-hmm. over again? Like uh, are we missing something? Are we missing the mark somewhere? Like are these are any of these actually better than the other? Because if so, like how bad were the previous ones? And I totally get that. And so a little history lesson on translations for you guys right quick is that the Bible, if you don't know, as most of you probably do understand, is the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, right? Like Koine Greek is the specific mm-hmm. language. Colton actually takes – are you in Greek yet or are you taking Hebrew? Right I'm now? done with Greek. I took, oh, man. I took four semesters in undergrad and two in grad school, and I am officially done with it. Um, man. So I'm in Hebrew right now. So. so Colton is our resident expert on Greek. We'll have him speak that <laughs> no. later. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish. But, but it, was obvious, it was written in those three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And since most people, well, I mean, even Colton takes the classes and is still relatively unfamiliar with the languages, even though he's literally taken them. And most people haven't even taken the languages. And so as a result, you got to rely on a Bible that's been translated into English or the whatever language that you speak. And so for this reason, a good Bible translation is like, a pretty essential tool if you're going to try and understand God's word or good luck, you know, trying to f- find your way through the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek text. Uh, I have even looked at some, you know, dabbled in some courses in that and I uh, still struggle. And so as do most people who have even gone to seminary. And so I think what a lot of people forget about this cult, and this is interesting, people like kind of hate on translations like, oh, original languages, like that's, you know, the, the top bar or whatever. The first translation that was ever created was called a Septuagint. And it was literally a translation of the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then they translated that into the Septuagint. What was what language is that translated into? Do you remember? Yeah, it was translated into Koine Greek. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah. Septuagint was just a translation of the Old Testament. And when Jesus was quoting like Old Testament scripture in the Gospels, he was quoting the Septuagint. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people may say, oh, well, you know, the translations isn't – some people ask and – I get tripped up. My professors in seminary love to do this, and like even pastors now, they ask, like, is the English translation of the Bible God's word? And it's like, and I don't know, have you ever been asked that question? It's kind of like a tricky question. Is the English translation of the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic, is that God's word? Has anybody ever asked you that? Yeah, people have, people have asked that, or I've pondered it myself. Um, yeah. And I would say, like, yes. Um, I think that the inerrancy is in the original manuscripts and that um there is debate for a variety of different things when it comes to like translating scripture um but we can have a high degree of trust and confidence in the english translations translations that we have um because of the work and because of the scholarship that's gone into giving us the closest possible english equivalent to what the original manuscripts actually said so so it's i would say that yes like the inerrant word is the original manuscripts, but we can have confidence and not be mm. worried when we're opening up our English Bibles if we're getting the real thing or if we're be- being like, you know, counterfeited because um, God has given us the common grace of good, good scholarship and good translators to give us the translations we have now. So, yeah, and word. And I think what showcase that even more so, historically speaking, is the fact that Jesus quoted the Septuagint when he was quoting the Old Testament. So he would go back points of verse, whether it was Isaiah or Deuteronomy or whatever he was quoting, and be like, he would quote in Greek from the Septuagint, which shows like even Jesus, who typically is the gold standard for all things Christianity, would be a person who says, hey, you know, just because it's not in Hebrew doesn't mean it's not God's word. You know, the translation works, Septuagint works. And from the Septuagint, you know, there was a Latin Vulgate, there was... 
uh, where the Bible was translated into Latin. There was finally uh, an English Bible. A lot of people know the name. If you've been in Christian scholarship at, at any point, is John Wycliffe. And he was really the first person who put the Bible into English and then became Tyndale and all these things. And Tyndale eventually led to what people consider as like, ah, like the amazing, like real standard of God's, you know, God's word, which is the KJV in like the 1600s. Mm-hmm. And so the KJV was really just a result of people getting together and saying, you know, having the same issue that we have today, which is once Tyndale came along, there were so many English translations going through England. And it was like, okay, like which one of these we're going to use? And King James got out of the council and he was like, hey, you know, this is going to be the real deal. Here's what we're going to roll with. And it wasn't just him. A lot of people think like King James just like sat down and was just like knocking this out. And <laughs> it was like, I think that's kind of funny how there's usually like something's usually assigned to a specific person in history, but in reality, it's like the whole team, the whole squad was a part of it. Yeah. And so King James, I think King James version, I have it in my notes here. King James version came out in like 16, like 1613 or something like that. It was revised like several, several times, 1604, July of 1604. Um, mm. And, you know, this kept rolling down. And for like 300 years, the King James version was like the top dog. That's why like really no other English translations can rival it. And that's why I think people, I don't know if Colton, has anybody ever said this to you? Like, or maybe you see this, I don't know what kind of vibe your church is, but sometimes in certain churches that I've been a part of, it's like, oh, you're not reading the King James version? Oh, well, you're not reading the Bible. Oh, you're reading yeah. that? Oh, that's not King James? Oh, no, nah, I'm, I'm a King James guy. Have you ever seen that before or like heard that in any of your church? Yeah, places? I mean, it's it's definitely a thing. It's not, I don't think it's a thing that my church struggles with, luckily. Um, oh, yeah. But I think that um, a lot of that's rooted in just tradition of King James. And also like realistically, um, our scholars have uncovered um, updated manuscripts that are closer to the um, the actual writing of of the Holy Scriptures. Um, so that's kind of informed how we've gone about translating them. So actually, uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any. Uh, I certainly wouldn't say that the King James is any any better. I wouldn't say that it's like necessarily worse. You should avoid yeah. it. But um, yeah, some, sometimes tradition kind of gives people blinders on that and won't let yeah. them. Uh, see beyond that you know other other translations yeah. are extremely helpful that's a word and it's it's true i mean sometimes what we're used to doing keeps us from getting to the place that maybe might be more efficient and optimal not to say that the king james version is bad as you're you know as you mentioned but i think there's some evidence to showcase that other translations do hold some significant weight and are reputable and are legit and things like that but the king james version flew for like 300 years really unchallenged and People kind of kept this caution of, well, like we don't want to create another England, and so we don't want to create another translation to go up and compete against it until really, I think, have it here, 1885, uh, and the American counterpart, man, the old American Standard Mm. Version, the ASV of 1901 came out, and this was really the, the genesis of like, it was like the waterfall fell through, right? It was everybody was like, okay, well, if they can do it, then we can do it. And it was just insanity after that. So nowadays, I think, I don't even know, like I have like a little list here um, of like all the translations, but there's NIV, NLT, Message, ESV, NASB, ASV, everything, right? And so when it comes to translations, I think um, there's a few reasons why there's different translations, but like, what are your initial thoughts on like, why do you think we see so many different translations. I mean, I, I'm literally looking at a list here on my notes and it looks like there's 
at least here, like 30, 30 or 40 yeah. different translations that you can go to Lifeway, you can go to Amazon and pick up. Why do you think, like, what have you heard as to why there's just so many different translations? Yeah. So, I mean, the reality is, is that when you translate from Hebrew to English or Greek to English, there is not a direct English equivalent to everything that you see in the original language. So, so even if you're translating word for word, like if you, if you were to go through and translate word for word, then like the syntax of the language is totally different and it's not going to end up making a, an understandable sentence. Um, you also have to look at the fact that a lot of the words that are in the original languages don't, again, don't have a direct like carryover meaning into English. So there's, there's what, what scholars will call a lexical range where one word can sort of mean a variety of things in the same way that in, in English, we have some words that have sort of a, a variety of meanings. Um, and because there's not this just simple, okay, plug into Google Translate and pop out this translation of the Bible so it's most accurate here, because that, that's not how the languages work, what scholars have to do is they have to take into account the flow of the sentence, the context of the book, and they have to figure out the nearest English equivalent that they can to the original language. And, and that, doesn't, that very rarely will change the actual meaning of the passage, which is like why I said earlier, we have confidence in, this, in the translations that we do have, but it will change the way in which you formulate those sentences depending on your approach to the scripture and also depending on the, the philosophy of translation that you're holding to. So long story short, it's, it's not just a plug and play like, okay, Greek equals this English over here. It's like, okay, we have to, we have to approach this within its context, within its genre, and look at the syntax and look at the lexical range of the variety of words in there. And different scholars with, with different goals of translation, philosophies of translation, can still communicate the same idea, but communicate it in a different English formation, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. No, that's good, though. Yeah, and I think it's good because when you said, you mentioned something specific that I latched onto, which is goal, like the goal of the translation. And so I have a little diagram here when it comes to like different goals, because a lot of people do think it's just as easy as plug and play as you mentioned. Oh, well, you know, in the Greek word, this is he sat. And so therefore, it's got to be the same thing over here. In reality, that could be two or three, four more words to say the same phrase in English than it was in the Koine Greek or the Hebrew or Aramaic. And so people do have different mentalities when they go to create things. I have it here is that people would assume it's just like, we'll get it as close to word for word. But it's like, if you want it as close to word for word as possible, good luck trying to read that. Um, And so here I have, it's three really spectrums, I like to say. So word for word being on like the far left side of the spectrum, like as close to the original Greek and Hebrew as possible. And then on the other side, you have like a paraphrase on the other side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of those things, you have thought for thought. So word for word, thought for thought and paraphrase all the way to the right side. And you really have translations groups anywhere on the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no like, unless you're reading, unless you're like Colton, you're just reading like Greek, like straight Greek, like you got the scrolls out and you're just getting after it. Um, you're not going to get like a, you're not going to get the perfect translation, quote unquote, the perfect translation being like, this is exactly what was written at the time, you know, et cetera you're going to get a sense of a translation. You're going to get a little bit of variance when it comes to those things. It doesn't discredit, as Cole mentioned earlier, it doesn't discredit the fact that it's God's word, but it does require you to think 
intentionally about that. Is it, does that make sense, Colton? Am I saying that appropriately? Yeah, I think that does make sense. Yeah. So when it comes to word for word, thought for thought, paraphrase, Colton, I'm sure you've heard those terms before. Where on that spectrum do you like to be? Or actually, maybe we could use some defining here on thought for thought too. Like, what do you what do you think thought for thought means on this spectrum? Like when people go to translate that way. Yeah, I think that um, thought for thought the 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 goal of well, I, can, can I take it a step back actually yeah, yeah, and absolutely. kind of like approach each, each of them kind of holistically? Yeah. So when a translation committee comes together, um, whatever translation it is, whether it be the ESV, the CSB, um, the NIV, NLT, something like that, um, they have what's called a philosophy of translation. And that might sound complicated, but really it is, is, is they have an idea of where they want to fall on that spectrum that you just laid out. Um, for example, the NASB, the NASB, um, they want it to be very formal very on the formal or word for word side of things nlt on the other hand more on the thought for thought and um functional side of the spectrum so so when a when a when a translation committee gets together they know what they're aiming for in their translation um so you could say that maybe the csb would be closer to the thought for thought category and i think that you would see that in how they translate scripture where um, the essential thoughts of the text are delivered in um, somewhat modern English, but it's still close to the original Greek or original Hebrew, where it's not necessarily way over on the paraphrasal side, like the message might be or something like that. Um, oh, yeah. So, so it just depends on the it depends on the goal and the philosophy of translation that they're going for, and that doesn't make it again. It doesn't make it any less inspired. Although once you step away from the um, thought for thought and word for word and into the paraphrasal then really what a paraphrasal is, is they're taking a text that's already been translated into English and they're modernizing the English. So the message isn't actually a translation. It's actually a paraphrasal of a translation. Yeah. Um, so I would approach that a little bit differently, but yeah. Mm. So what are your thoughts on like the message Bible, which I think when most people think of a paraphrase type of edition, it would be the message. What are your thoughts on using that for personal quiet time, using it to preach, yeah. using it to whatever? Yeah, so I I personally don't really use the message that much, but I'm not one of the people who's going to like mock people who do because I know that um, it can be a very helpful. It's like the same way that I use a commentary sometimes to supplement my devotion. Um, it's almost like Eugene Peterson, the author of the message. It's almost like his paraphrasal slash his commentary on the on the passage. So um, if you want to use it to supplement your devotional time because it's easier to read and it and the Lord can use it to minister to your heart more closely, then there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I would also encourage you to maybe pick up a more formal one, uh, like the ESV, um, that's maybe a little closer to kind of like supplement your time in the Message Bible. Um, and, you know, I would use in preaching maybe quotes from the Message Bible, but I wouldn't preach mm. from the message as my primary text, if that makes yeah. any sense. So what are your thoughts on using, you know, for us, we're pastors, but even people who aren't full-time ministry listening to this, maybe they, maybe they're doing a personal quiet time, but then they're also leading a Bible study or they're also, mm -hmm. maybe they do speak in some capacity, maybe whatever, right? You know, they, they do different yeah. things, you know, interpret the Bible at, at different times for different reasons. What are your thoughts on someone using, I don't know, ESV for their quiet time and the NLT for 
their messages or do, do you feel like, nah, like if you're going to, if you're going to do it, do it, like use one or would you say, no, nah, like use, use them all. Like, is there a benefit to using multiple translations? Yeah, I think there's definitely a benefit for using multiple translations, especially when you aren't familiar with the original languages and you can't really interact with the original languages um, because it gives you a variety of different experts takes on that passage. And it also might enlighten the word to you in a way that's unique and in a way that the spirit might use to actually like do something in your heart that wouldn't have been done if you hadn't read it in that, uh, in that other translation. Um, as for Bible studies, I think that the, when you go on the more functional side or the more thoughtful thought for thought side of things, when you're, when you're reading, um, in a sense, the, the scholars have already done some of the interpretation for you by making it more modernized and more understandable, where if you want to learn how to wrestle with um, what's closer to the original language and, and learn that, that, that sort of art of interpretation yourself as you're doing a Bible study, um, I would encourage to maybe go with a more formal, so I keep using the terms formal and functional, basically the same thing you said with like the spectrum, formal being more word for word functional, more, yeah. more functional. Um, I would recommend a more formal one for Bible study, but for preaching, for example, I like to use the CSB in my preaching, which is kind of like in the middle of the road, just because it's easier for people to understand, especially because I preach to a youth group. So I think the context varies um, and that overall it is healthy to use a variety of translations though. Yeah. And I think people obviously operate with caution because there are inevitably, there are some translations that are just wrong. They're Mm. they're They, have more semantical problems and legitimate interpretive issues than a, maybe a more mainstream type of thing. Like you know, in the Bible app, you can see like translations yeah. galore, right? You could choose anything you want. There's gotta be like 70 of those things on there. And some of those are like not good. They're not good for like quiet time. They're not good for most things, but the, your more mainstream ones, I like to think about it as like tools on a toolbox as opposed to, mm-hmm. well, like what should I use a hammer or a wrench? both like use use mm-hmm. all the tools that you have at your disposal in the same way use all the translations you have at your disposal you know if you want to mix it up one day use nlt if you want to if you want more of a word for word use uh asv or, or you know nasb use esv if you want to read through mm-hmm. the message and you're kind of like it's your quiet times getting a little stale use the message like that stuff's great when you're speaking mm-hmm. and Maybe you're working your way through a passage or depending on your audience, like for both of us, we speak to teenagers all the time. Like I'll use NLT sometimes. I'll use, I like Mm -hmm. ESV, but you know, NIV comes into play at times and it really just depends on the crowd. But if I was speaking to adults, maybe I would just use specifically ESV. It really is depending on the scenario that you're in uh, when it comes to translations and things like that. But one thing I want to jump into, I have this list that I was kind of looking, I was doing some research beforehand, Colton. I just wanted to be ready for your your wealth of knowledge. I didn't want to pale in comparison to you. And so I, I looked at some stuff and the question, why are there so many different translations? Some of the things I saw, like one, there's new discoveries in being biblical manuscripts. Like when KJV was written, that was before they found what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I think they found yeah. those in like a hundred AD or no, no, no. They found those in 1800s or something like that. They yeah. found them, but they're dated back to hundred BC. And so King James writ- was written without that. And so that came into play. There's improvements in scholarship, as you mentioned earlier. Like people are just smarter, man. Like straight up, like not no hate on the historical individuals, but like people have just built upon information and mm-hmm. they see things maybe in a better light because of the base that was built by a, 
other scholarship. There's also changes in the English language. Like I know for me, I use slang more than anybody. And if you're on TikTok, you know that people to say like words that all mm-hmm. of a sudden become legitimate usage of the English language now. And like that comes into play too. People just literally just do not speak the same. If you've ever taken like an English literature class, you know that like you try to read Shakespeare or anything. You're like, what, like, what is this? Um, mm-hmm. And then the last one, Colton, this is an unfortunate one. I, I want to get your thoughts on this. I really think a big factor at play when it comes to translations is money. Like the idea of monetization, the idea of, well, like how, how much can NIV really improve on their translation? Like 2013, the 2016 version, like that's, you know, the 2022, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like the truth is translations sell. And if we can create a new and improved, better version of the previous one that every, like then the other company made on the other side of the the river there, then that company can remain in business. Like, let's just not forget about this. Like we're in America, it's capitalism. People are making money. Like Bibles cost a lot of money. It's just the reality. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that plays a part or are you like, nah, Nick, that's not it. That's not true. I think that, you know, it would be kind of ignorant to say that it doesn't play a part at all. Um, I haven't really thought about that too much personally. Um, but there is something to be said about like, you know, uh, if they've approached the text already and, and wrestled with it and came out with the translation that they have, um, then, you know, 50 years of revisions, you know, maybe, maybe that's not entirely necessary. So I can see, I can definitely see the point that you're making. Yeah. 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 And so, but I think in all these, like, there's always going to be options regarding which version of God's word, but the worst option by far is choosing not to read it at all. Mm. So to say, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Is that more important than the nitty gritty details of like word for word, thought for thought, paraphrase in each translation and which one somatically is so perfect rather than that. It's just using one you understand and that you will actually read. I, I've heard one, I think Zach Wendall on TikTok said the best translation of the Bible is the one that you actually read. Mm. And I think that just speaks so much to the simplicity of just read the word and you'd be amazed at the sanctification process that the Holy Spirit will use um, through that. And so with it said, uh, Colton, man, I, I appreciate your time, bro. Is there any last thoughts you have on transitions, anything that you're like, Hey Nick, you know, I have this, I was thinking about this. Yeah. I would just say, don't let it overwhelm you and, you know, have faith in the fact that you have the Holy spirit in you. And one of the roles of the Holy spirit is to illuminate the Bible to us when we read it. Um, so have faith that the spirit is going to guide you as you read your devotions and as you maybe read a text that you just feel like you have no idea what it's about. Um, also realize that we live in an era that is unlike any other era previous, really, where we have so much access to resources to study the word and so much access to translations. I was thinking about, um, earlier, a friend and I were having a conversation about, I forget what language they were they was their was their mother tongue. I forget the, the conversation itself. But we're talking about how they said that they only had one translation that they could read in their mother tongue. And like that's not the case for us. Like we have really it's it's a gift of God's common grace that we have the translations, the commentaries, the YouTube channels, the solid ones that is, um, that can supplement our reading and and allow us to grow. Because, you know, like five hundred years ago, when scripture was not accessible and when people were hardly literate, families would pass around a single page of scripture thinking in England 
Um, they pass around a single page of scripture, memorize the entire thing that week, and then trade with another family so they can then get a new page of scripture to memorize that way because they treasured the word. And that was when they had very little access. And we have so much access to things that people would have died for in the past. And it's our responsibility to make use of them to the fullness of how God has granted it to us. So uh, that's just an encouragement. That's something that I think about a lot. I'm con- kind of convicted about a lot um, is, am I making use of the gifts of God's grace that he's given me to study the word? And am I trusting in the spirit to be with me as I study the word? Um, yeah. So that's an encouragement to the listeners to just, you know, have confidence in the spirit that he will lead you. So Yeah, good word, bro. And I appreciate you being on. You're a stud. And thank you guys for listening. Until next week, peace. Peace. I hope this episode helped you out and provided you tons of clarity and encouragement. If so, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also share this show on your social media. It helps more than you know. Until next time.